Today's reading is from Daniel 1, um, reading from the ESV Bible. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Daniel taken to Babylon. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Asaria he called Ab Abednego. Okay. Daniel's faithfulness. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them none were found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Uh, good to be with all, you, with all of you this morning. We are starting our first study into Daniel. Um, and actually, to be honest, we're going to study more than just Daniel. Really, we're actually going to spend the next several weeks and even past our study of Daniel really looking at what does it mean to live an excellent life as a Christian. Because we live in a world that is constantly swirling. I mean, what I mean by that is that culture is, 
is something that is always evolving and it's changing. And sometimes that change can be quick. Sometimes that change can be slow. And for an example of how a culture can change quickly, let's just think about what the pandemic would have been like 20 years ago. Because it would have looked completely different in the year 2001. Because think about this. Last year when really everything started happening, lockdown happening, churches started closing their doors, a lot of churches were able to move to an online service rather easily because all you needed was a phone and an internet connection. Uh, we were able to still meet virtually, right? We were able to have Zoom, our Facebook Messenger, our Skype. Um, in fact, over the pandemic, I was still able to play board games with my friends using an online program, right? But all of those things didn't exist in the year 2001. If we were in lockdown in the year 2001, these are the things we're missing. First, Skype, which is the oldest of the video calling apps, didn't come around to 2003. Uh, Facebook wasn't created till 2004. YouTube didn't start accepting videos until 2005. Uh, Justin.tv, which is the first website to actually do live streaming, wasn't until 2006. And the iPhone, which is really the first modern smartphone, didn't come out till 2007. Many of the things that help us today, that shape how we live, are really not that old when you think about it. And that just shows that as technology grows rapidly, culture also has shifted tremendously over that. There wasn't social media 20 years ago, but look at how social media changes our culture today. And as the world has become more interconnected and more just everybody sharing everything, we start hearing new ideas. There's new philosophies. There's new views about culture that just come out that we may, might not have heard before. Um, it might have been an idea or a philosophy that was just a small, like only a few people had it, but now it's being shared with everybody. And this exchange of ideas, um, it can challenge us because what it does is as more ideas are shared, as more of these philosophies are um, shared between people and views are just expressed, it really elevates the issue that we as Christians are in the world, but not of the world. It presents a Christian with a problem that is old as the Bible itself. And that problem is this. How do we interact with the culture around us while holding on to the truth God has given us? Or in other words, how do we love God and love our neighbor? Because one thing we need to remember as Christians is that there's a difference between being right and being helpful. Or as a book that I'm currently reading puts it like this. It says, truth without grace is mean. Grace without truth is meaningless. And all of this, all of these issues, this whole idea, it brings us to Daniel. This is why we're starting with Daniel today. And so real quick, before we jump into the book of Daniel, let's just a quick background, some context for the book of Daniel. And luckily I know from, because I'm the geek that's usually behind the camera and the computer and stuff, and I get to see this. While you guys in the room didn't see this, I put up a poll each week asking a different question. And this week I just asked, have you ever read Daniel? And I think I've gotten a 100% response to our viewers that they've all read Daniel. And I'm going to assume that that's probably 
pretty common around here that Daniel's not a new book to you. But even with that, I always think it's good to still give some context, still think about where is Daniel in the Bible and how did it come to be? Because remember, when you read a book of the Bible, one of the first things you should do is think about what is the type of book you're reading, because that's going to help you determine how you should read that book. Just this week, I was in Blue Water, and as I was waiting for um, to meet up with somebody, I spent a few minutes in Waterstones, and as I was sitting there and I was walking through, there's different sections. There's the travel section, there's a biography section, there's a sci-fi section, etc., right? Because these are all different types of books, and, they, and so they put them in these nice sections so you can pick the type of book you want to read, and that's how the Bible works, too. So let's look at Daniel. Most of your modern day English Bible translations have Daniel put in a section that's commonly called the major prophets. But in the original Hebrew Bible, the way that they ordered their books, they actually put Daniel in what they call the writings, is where they would put like Ezra and Nehemiah. So as we look at it, do we, do we look at Daniel as a book as a prophet, or do we look at a book that's a writing? Well, it it's kind of both. There's a reason why it's actually in both of these, depending on how you uh, look at what order you uh, have the Old Testament in. And that's because Daniel has two main parts. The first six chapters are these stories about Daniel and his friends in exile, whereas the second set of chapters is all about Daniel's visions. So when we see this, we can read, we can see that it's actually kind of two different genres kind of squished together. So as we go over these first few chapters, we look at him as, in the same way that we look at like Esther. It's a story that shows us Hebrew life in light of being in exile. Also traditionally, the author of Daniel is thought to be Daniel. And while everything we learn about Daniel does come from the book of Daniel, we also know that Daniel must have been pretty famous among the Jews in exile. And I say that because if we look at Ezekiel, who was the prophet to the exiles, Ezekiel 14.14 says this, Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. The context of that verse is that Ezekiel is saying that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, and even if these three righteous men were in the city, their lives would be saved, but the city would still be destroyed. But let's look at that list of three people that he picks. First, Noah. We should all know as Noah from Noah building the ark, right? Back in Genesis 6-9, we're told this about Noah, that he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, right? Noah was picked to build the ark because it says he was the only person righteous out of like the entire world. Job, from the book of Job, um, also gets a pretty amazing recommendation from God himself, because in Job 1.8 it says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? So when Ezekiel is trying to pick out some people who would probably be considered the most righteous people in the Bible as an example, he picks out Noah, Job, and Daniel. That's the type of reputation Daniel had. So how did Daniel get this kind of reputation? Well, to help us understand how he became so famous, we kind of need to understand the environment that he found himself in. 
Now, because there's a lot of different events that are listed inside of the book of Daniel, we can know when in history these things are happening. So if we look at verses 1 and 2, which sets up the whole context for the whole book, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So what's going on here? Well, if you don't know your biblical history, just a really quick recap for you. Uh, the country of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, used to be one kingdom. And then during the reign of Solomon's son, it was split into two. The northern part kept the name Israel, but it didn't keep following the God that had put them there in the first place. And because they failed to follow God, they were eventually taken over by the Assyrians and sent into exile. The southern kingdom took the name Judah because that was the main tribe that, was, that formed the southern kingdom. And they did a bit better at following God, but overall, they also failed to, be, to, to faithfully follow God. And because of that, God sent prophets like Jeremiah who told them that the Babylonians were coming and they were going to take them over. And that is what happened. And we also get this guy, Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. And there's two very important things you need to know about him. First, even though his father was Josiah, who is one of, if not the most devoted king to God of all the kings of Judah, Jehoiakim, on the other hand, was not. He was listed as one of the evil kings of Judah, which just goes to show you that just because you follow God doesn't necessarily mean that your kids will automatically follow God as well. Second, Jehoiakim was a king that was put in place by Egypt. You see, in 2 Chronicles 36, 3-4, it says this, Then the king of Egypt deposed him in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him to Egypt. So why is this important? Why do I point out that he was a king set up by Egypt? Well, that's because Egypt and Babylon are rivals back at this time. So what does Babylon do? Well, they decide that they're going to take what is Egypt's and make it theirs. Because just a few verses later in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 6, we read, Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. And that brings us all the way back to Daniel. So that's the situation we find Daniel in. The king of Judah has been captured by Babylon, and along with him, some of the treasures of the temple. But those weren't the only things that were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon at this time. We read that, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. And of that group, we know that's where we find Daniel, and his three friends. They would be taken and be trained to serve the king of Babylon. They were going to learn to speak the language, to understand the culture, and to just be taught what they needed to know so they could become advisors to the king. They would be treated well. They would be given the king's food and looked after during their training, which, when you think about it, if, if you just read it on a surface level, that doesn't sound half bad. Because, I mean, if you're being taken captive by a hostile nation, you couldn't do much better than being given the best food 
uh, be given the best education and be given an opportunity at the best job in the entire kingdom. But when you look at how or why they were training them, you kind of realize there's something else going on. You see, they wanted to take these captives and mold them to no longer be Jewish, but to be Babylonian. The Babylonians were not just trying to add people to their nation. They were trying to assimilate people. And this is actually a huge theme in the Bible. This goes throughout the whole Bible. It just might not be the most apparent theme that a lot of people pick up on. But there is this tension between God, who wants everyone to come and join his family, but keep their cultural identity, and human nations who want to force everybody into their nation and then make them look like they, what they say they should look like. I mean, in fact, this overriding of culture to bring people into a single way of living and a single language should sound familiar. It, it should, hopefully in your minds, hyperlink back to a different story in the Bible, and that is the Tower of Babel. Because in Genesis 11, it tells us that mankind desired to make a name for itself. And so instead of spreading out, like what God had commanded them to do, they decided to all stay in one place and to build this tower. And when God sees this, he comes down and he causes them all to suddenly speak different languages, which forces them to break up into groups and their attempt to build this tower fails. But the theme continues throughout the Bible and throughout history, honestly. Because throughout history, we see nation after nation rise and as they rise up, they seek to conquer everybody else and then force their culture onto those people. Like, that's just a common theme throughout all of history. Yet, what is the picture of heaven that we're given? In Revelation 7, 9, it tells us that, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. God's family is a, di a diverse family. And we talked about this briefly last week with the 12 disciples, right? We talked about how Jesus didn't pick a group of people that would just get along or all think the same. He picked a 12, of people, 12 different people that probably some of them hated each other. But the 12 disciples show us that we can overcome our differences because of the fact that we're all following the same person and we all are a part of the same family. But what does our enemy do? Well, he uses our differences to divide us, right? He tries to make us think that our view of something is better than somebody else's view and to force our view onto them. And be, by doing that, he's trying to break apart the family of God. So what are we reading in this first chapter? So what we're reading in this first chapter of Daniel is Babylon is doing the same thing. They're forcing their views onto these captive Babylonians. They're going to try to take Daniel and his three friends and not make them Jewish anymore. And they go so far to even change their names. Verse 7 says this, And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hanani he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Which, real quick, I just want to say, Natalie did an amazing job reading all of those names and getting through that. Because when I asked her, like, hey, do you want to do the reading? I don't think she realized all the different names that are going to be in that chapter. And usually when people know that there's a bunch of names in a chapter, they're like, oh, no, I don't want to read that. I actually had a youth pastor one time that whenever he would come up to like verses like this, he'd be like, 
And Daniel, he called that guy. And Hannah and I, he called that guy. And like, that's how he would do it. He just wouldn't even say the name. He'd just be like, that guy, that girl. Now, as I've said, I think in almost every time that I've taught, names are important. Like, this is just, like, this is like Bible 101. Names are important. Names are actually important even today. Because names work like labels, right? I mean, have you ever met someone? And as you're talking with them, as you're getting to know them, when you hear their name, you're like, oh, you are totally that name. Like, oh, you're, you're totally a Liz. Or, oh, you know, you're totally a Joel, right? Like, have you ever had that experience? And also, additionally to that, we can also give people additional names. Uh, sometimes these are positive, like how I call Rachel my love because I want to like, reinforce that identity on her that she is the person that I love. But too often as humans, we like to give each other names that tear down our identities. And while having someone call you a name once may hurt a little bit, having a hurtful name told to you over and over and over again can cause us to almost take that and make it our identity. So when we look at how the names are changed in Daniel, we see that the Babylonians are doing the same thing. Yeah, they not, might not be calling them a bad name, but they are trying to change their identity. Because let's look at how their name, what their names mean. So if we look at their Hebrew names, all of their Hebrew names are focused on God. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means God has been gracious. Mishael means who can compare to my God. And Azariah is Yahweh has helped. But when we look at how their names are changed, the names that the Babylonians give them, it's all about Babylon or its false gods. Belshazzar is protect the king. Shadrach means command of Aku, which is a foreign god that they worship. Meshach is who is what Aku is. And Abednego means servant of Nego, which is another one of their gods. And so the challenge for Daniel and his friends are going to be that they're going to need to figure out how to stand firm in their identities as followers of God while in the midst of a culture that is trying to turn them away from God. It's the same challenge we face today that I talked about at the beginning of this sermon. Because the world we live in is going to tell us constantly that we should be finding our identity in things outside of God. I mean, when you meet somebody, what are some of the first questions you ask that person? You might ask, well, what's their age? Or where are they from? Or a big one that we ask is, what do you do? And that just shows how our modern Western society, our jobs and our identity get so intertwined. And I know people that because this is so reinforced by our culture that if you don't have a job, it almost can cause an identity crisis. But the Bible tells us that we have an identity and an identity that's given to us by God. In fact, first, every person in the world is given an identity by God in Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Every human, first and foremost, are bearers of God's image, which means we are all created equal. right? God didn't say, oh, well, this certain group of people or this specific race are better than any other. He said, no. He's like, I'm creating all of you, and all of you are going to bear my image. But as Christians, God gives us even more than just bearers of his image. 
First, he tells us we are adopted into his family. Galatians 4, 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We now have a relationship with God that we are his sons and daughters, and we can call him not just father, but daddy. Not just that, but we are also co-heirs with Christ. Galatians 4, 7 says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We have a divine identity that goes beyond social status or wealth or employment. We are children of God, and we can find our identity, value, and worth in him and in Christ. So since we now find our identity through in God, through Jesus, we should also look like we are a part of that family. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 15 says, As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Families have family traits. Like, when you meet the parents of a friend, like, so often you can quickly see, like, the traits that they all share. Like, for instance, when the first time I met Joel's dad, like, it was very clear that that was Joel's dad, right? Like, it was very clear that they were from the same family. And by the way, if you haven't had a chance to meet Joel's dad, you should, because he's a lovely person. But, right, the point is, is that there are family traits that get passed down, that you're like, oh, that person is definitely part of that family. And in the same way, as people who are a part of the family of God, it should not be hard for other people to tell that we are part of that family. We should have those family traits. It shouldn't surprise somebody that when they get to know you that you're a Christian. But at the same time, our identity in Christ isn't a weapon. It isn't something that we wield against others. Or as Joel put it to me the other day, you shouldn't pick up your cross daily only to use it to bash others over the head with it. And that is the challenge we see in Daniel. How will he and his friends live in a way that honors their identity as followers of God but also honors the culture they now find themselves in. Well, we see the first time they actually really have to deal with this challenge comes in the form of food. Because in verse 8, it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Which, okay, so you read that, and you may now wonder, well, okay, well, what is it about the food that would cause him to be defiled? Well, I mean, of course, there are probably some things that the king of Babylon ate that wouldn't be considered clean in, according to Jewish law. But I think also it's probably because of how it was prepared. You see, when food was prepared for the king back then, most of the time it would be actually first offered as a sacrifice to one of their gods and then served. So that makes the food, by, by default, unclean. And so what does Daniel do? What's his solution to not defile himself with this unclean food? Well, he becomes a vegan. You see, in verse 10, it says, And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For who should he see that you were in worse? Why should he see? Why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Notice that Daniel's decision 
doesn't affect just himself. Sometimes we often forget that when we as Christians decide maybe not to do something, that our decision to, to basically do what we think is right can harm others. It brings into tension the idea that we're supposed to love God and love people. But there, there's a truth that the enemy doesn't want us to realize, and that is to love God is to love people, and to love people is to love God. If your actions are only doing one of those things, then you may need to reevaluate your decision or what your action is. So what can we learn from Daniel? What can we learn from his situation that we can take today? Well, let's see what he does. In verses 12 to 13, it says, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Notice that Daniel, he does two things. First, he gives himself and his friends a chance to show that their God-honoring way will not harm anybody else. He, makes, he picks a time, right? He picks 10 days, which should be long enough to see the effects without getting this chief eunuch in trouble. But more importantly, he shows that if they are wrong, that they are willing to do what is needed to protect this person's life. He doesn't say, give us 10 days, and if we're doing worse, well then, oh well, we're going to still not eat the food. He says, deal with your servants according to what you see. Of course, Daniel and his friends are totally fine after eating only plants for 10 days, as any vegan would have predicted. But remember, Daniel didn't do all of this just to be proven right. He did this to find a way to love God and to love people. And this is the challenge today. Too often I see Christians so caught up in being right that they end up harming the people around them. They are so focused on proving their love for God that they end up stop, they stop showing love for other people, which is kind of ironic because when they stop showing people love for other people, they've actually stopped showing their love for God. And if you look at these last few chapters of Daniel 1, we're going to see that Daniel and his friends, they still learned everything they needed to learn, right? It's not like they said, well, we're not going to learn your culture or your language. No, they learned how to speak like a Babylonian. They learned how to think like a Babylonian. And yet, they stood out from the Babylonians because they were able to keep their convictions and still show respect to those around them. They show that you can both know and understand what other people believe while holding on to your own beliefs. So what? Well, at the beginning of the sermon, I quoted from a book that I've been reading called Daniel Dilemma by Chris Hodges, and it is something that the book is, that the, not the book is recommending, the church is recommending. Um, in it, he talks about this very dilemma that we deal with today. There's always going to be a divide between the culture around us because we must always remember that we are not citizens of this world. Like, Rachel and I really do love living here in the UK, and we could spend so much time learning how to talk the same way, and we can eat the same food, and we can do our best to become as British as possible, but there's always going to be a little bit of a divide culturally between us and the people in the UK because our passports don't say United Kingdom on it. In the same way, we are citizens of heaven and not of the world. So just like how Rachel and I can see, 
our, do our best, we seek to do our best to respect the culture around us, we do the same. We seek to respect the culture around us, but we realize that it's not our culture. We hold firm to our true identities. This world will constantly tell us to try to find our identity and things of it. It wants us to make us, it wants us to focus on things of the world, but the things of the world come and go. If you build your identity into a job or wealth or something like that, all that can be gone in an instant. I mean, just look a year ago when the pandemic hit. There's many people who, were, who lost their jobs, who that was their identity for a long time. We instead find our identity in Christ, in the rock that will never be moved. And while standing on that firm foundation, we love those around us because the truth is there should be no tension in loving God and loving your neighbor. So just two quick questions to end. Where do you find your identity and are you loving both God and people? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for today. Thank you that you are a God who, who loves us first and foremost. You sent your son because of your love for us. And you give us such an amazing identity to be called a son or daughter of Christ, son or daughter of God. God, thank you so much for just all the love you pour out on us. And God, I pray that every day as we live in this world, that is hostile towards you, that we will be able to stand firm in our identities, but we will stand firm in such a way that we will show your love that you have for the world to the people around us. That as Christians, that, that, that label Christian means that we love people. God, thank you so much that you are a rock that doesn't get moved. That by putting our identity in you, we are not putting our identity in something that could go away. We're not putting our identity in something that could be gone tomorrow. Thank you so much for all that you've done and all that you will do. In your name, amen.